Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, where we are talking about the Bible as we read through the Bible on a weekly Bible reading plan. We are on week nine, that includes days 57 through 63, and I am joined today by Andrew John Molnix. Joseph. Andrew Joseph <laughs> Molnix. Close. And Joshua Iko Huber. Akio. Akio. Okay, Aikyo I messed my, up both of your middle yeah. names. It was my mom's middle name, so I'm pretty close. Okay. Um, great to be with you guys. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks, Aaron. Now, this week, I am taking over as the host and moderator of the podcast, um, mostly because it's hard to keep Josh from talking mm. and hard to keep AJ from talking. These guys talk so much yeah. uh, that I thought I'd flip the tables on them and guide the discussion. We're in Leviticus. AJ, could you walk us through Leviticus 13, 18 through 24, 23? I mostly just want to talk about chapter 16, which is the Day of Atonement. And we touched on this briefly last week. It's in the center of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is in the center of the Pentateuch. And I think the position of this book is important. And I think there's a significance to that that we should notice. Many people have noticed that the book of Leviticus is arranged in a chiasm, which is, you correct me if I'm wrong, it's a, a structure of parallel sections or ideas do you want to? Yeah, that absolutely. So, if you can imagine like geese flying in a V pattern, imagine that there's a concept that's mirrored by the geese on either side of the pattern. And then there's like something unifying in the center. And very often in the Hebrew construction of, of a piece of literature, the most significant items will either be the first items that are paralleled, where it starts and ends with that same concept, or right in the center. Um, and in this case, I think we would say that chapter 16 is the center of Leviticus and is the ultimate center of the Pentateuch is really kind of the climax and key point um, as Israel is now given instruction on how to draw near to God in this on this day of atonement. Yeah, specifically, we see chapters 1 through 7 deals with sacrifices. And then at the end of the book, chapters 23 through 27 deal with sacrifices. And then moving inward... Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the priests, and then moving inward from the, the end of the book, chapters 21 and 22 deal with the priests, another section inward, chapters 11 through 15 deal with purification, 17 through 20 deal with the love of neighbor and the behaviors of the Israelites, which is what the purification is is all about and what it represents. And like you said, Aaron, the center of the whole thing is the Day of Atonement, which even chapter 16 itself seems to be arranged in a, a chiasm as well. Well, I think one thing that we'd want to know with this progression is that throughout, they are just given instructions to do this. There's not really an explanation for how sacrifices actually work. There's not really a full interpretation of the rituals. It just tells you what to do and what it allows you to do now that the ritual is accomplished. And it's not really until we get to somewhere like the book of Hebrews where there's an interpretation of the theory of sacrifice, we might say. Yeah, I think it is, it's a resolution to a problem, right? So in, in Genesis, Adam and Eve are dwelling in God's presence in the garden, which is, like we've said before, a cosmic temple. And they sin and have to leave the garden. And then it's, the question is, how do humans dwell in God's presence? And we're seeing God institute this here with these 
rules and regulations, moving towards having humanity dwell in his presence. And we see these different purification laws and rituals, and we're going to see in chapter 16 how the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies, where life really is. We see It starts off with Nadab and Abihu dying mm-hmm. because they possibly entered the Holy of Holies in an incorrect manner, but um, we're going to see how man can enter God's presence and atone for the sins of the Israelites uh, through this, this celebration here. Yeah, and and I think that's all that we can really take away from, from these texts. I think there are other observations that we can make that maybe shed some light on some of the rationale of what's going on. So, for example, going back to the dietary laws in chapter 11, the animals are discussed in the same order in which they were created. So, so even the laying out of the law is orderly in that way, but it doesn't really tell us too much about what's going on there. Uh, but it does communicate how individuals can draw close to the Lord. And it also communicates how those who are not, not part of God's people can be drawn into the people of Israel and live and function well with them. Um, and I think that is sometimes overlooked when we think about Leviticus. Very often we think it's just about sacrifices, and we forget that actually there are instructions for Israel on how to relate to the alien among them, right? Um, to love the alien and to uh, provide for them, to protect them. And that's a significant part of Leviticus as well. So if I was going to try to prove that this is in Leviticus, I would read from Leviticus 19.33, where it says, When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as a native-born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." So I think it's significant that, at least from my recollection, the emphasis on the treatment of an outsider comes after the Day of Atonement. Um, I think there's this approach to God, this cleansing of sin, this recognition of God who has redeemed you, now transforms the way you relate to other people. And that's explicitly stated here. I think you're, you're touching on this, but many people might be tempted just to say, why read the book of Leviticus? What is its significance uh, for me as a New Covenant believer? I mean, these guys are under the law, all these purification laws. We're talking about the Day of Atonement here. Uh, speak to me as if I'm completely ignorant. Um, why, why is this important, Aaron and AJ? What, what's Leviticus about as uh, we, we come to the New Testament, to where we are today? It's significant that Israelites, they had to celebrate this on the 10th day of the seventh month. And Last July 10th, I know Resurrection Church did not have a Day of Atonement <laughs> celebration, so uh, something happened between then and now. Um, mm-hmm. Something changed. Number one, the temple was destroyed, mm-hmm. um, so we don't have that. And I think we do have to look to Hebrews to really interpret this passage. Like I said, the Holy of Holies is where life is found. Outside the presence of God is is death and uncleanness, and we have a better sacrifice mm in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Here the animal was sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled around the altar and brought in uh, to the Holy of Holies. Um, so there the, the offering was about the handling and manipulation of the blood in this ritual. And I would say that the sacrifice was made when in, when Jesus died on the cross. We are told in Hebrews that he you know brings his own blood into mm-hmm. the heavenly mm-hmm. tabernacle that wasn't made by hands and presents his self as a sacrifice, his blood, mm, before mm-hmm. the heavenly altar. 
in atonement for his people. Um, so I think that type of literal and typological fulfillment is what we find significant today for us. Mm-hmm. So what we see here in Leviticus um, colors and helps us understand the necessity for Jesus and what he did in his sacrifice. And without this backdrop, we wouldn't understand maybe the the seriousness of our sins, the need to be clean and pure before God. And in all of this, it helps us understand fully that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the day of atonement, the one who would um, perfectly once and for all cleanse us from our uncleanness, our, our sinfulness, so that we can approach God. And so maybe you would say that without this backdrop, we, <laughs> we, we don't really fully get what Jesus is doing in the New Testament. Yeah, I think I would want to say that reading Leviticus does at least three th- things for you. Mm-hmm. The first, as you're saying, is it gives you a greater appreciation and understanding of Jesus's sacrifice, atonement, priestly, and sacrificial work. Mm-hmm. So just by itself, I think that's significant. Right. Um, second... I think it helps us see that our sin is not a private matter between me and God only, but mm-hmm. there's a community aspect to dealing with sin and to bar- participating in holiness together. Mm-hmm. And, and it's interesting that the author of Hebrews picks this yeah. up as well. I think he can do that, or she, as the case might be, <laughs> can do that because the the book of Leviticus shows not only the significance of an atoning sacrifice, but also the significance of the life of the community in connection to that atoning sacrifice. Mm. So those two things by themselves are really important. But then third, I think it gives us the language and imagery that we need to pick up on the illusions that the New Testament authors use, but don't cite explicitly. Mm. So it helps us read texts of Scripture with the right kind of stock phrases in mind or the right imagery that's brought to mind instead of thinking that they're coming up with something on them by themselves. They're, mm-hmm. they're drawing on the Old Testament, and they're using this language, and we're only able to pick up on that if we've read the book of Leviticus. I think we should also realize, too, the great privilege that we have to enter God's presence. It seems a huge ordeal for one guy to enter God's presence mm-hmm. in the Old Covenant and... We have a great privilege through our new priest who's of the order of Melchizedek, and he made atonement so that we can access God's presence and relate to him in a way that Old Covenant people could not. Yeah, and this is a tough conversation, right? Because on the one hand, we want to say, Jesus is so much better. Read this and feel how how difficult it would be. But then we have to avoid saying, God created this legalistic, hyper-burdensome system that was just so oppressive to these people, when in reality, God is giving them a way to be in the land without being ex- ex- you know, sent out, exiled from the land. Uh, so where Adam and Eve were sent away from the garden, God gives Israel a way to stay in the land. So we want to also be careful to avoid saying, this is so awful, negative, bad, because it was an act of grace and kindness. But when it's set against the grace of Jesus Christ, it, it definitely um, dims mm-hmm. in, in the brightness of Christ's sacrifice. Josh, anything else that you wanted to say from this week's reading in Leviticus? <laughs> um, as we go through this, the different rituals and the laws and the purification ones especially, I, 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 it's amazing as you go to the New Testament, they're still operating kind of within the system of uncleanness. And as you see, even as you go to Mark, uh, this woman who has a discharge of blood, who's unclean, 
I mean, you're coming back to Leviticus, and she's supposed to be on her own, and she's supposed to be isolated away from those who are clean. And so it adds, I think, a lot more color to what, what's happening in the New Testament as you see her approach Jesus and then touch him. Yeah, when, when you mm-hmm. see that over and over again, mm-hmm. if you touch something right. unclean, you right. become unclean. Mm-hmm. But when Jesus does, he makes all things new. Yeah, he makes her clean. She's suddenly yeah. clean. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think another piece as we think about Leviticus, we think about holiness, mm. and we might start to think of holiness as like this makes you separated, set apart, these sorts of things, which is somewhat true. But when you read Leviticus, it's not so much as being set apart, like as if this is troublesome and burdensome, but it's about allowing you to approach closer to God. And so you're set apart perhaps in that way, but actually you're being drawn close. So I think maybe if we can change some of the way we talk about being holy is something that allows you to draw near to God and participate in his holiness. It makes it seem a little bit more enjoyable Mm -hmm. and less Mm -hmm. like you're a monk out in the wilderness somewhere. That's what holiness is. No, holiness is the ability to draw close to God. As we transition to the Gospel of Mark, we are privileged to have a Mark expert with us on the panel this afternoon. (laughs) Right, right. I won't correct you on that. The Reverend Joshua Huber is preached through the Gospel of Mark, and he joined us last week. He was kind enough, gracious enough, (laughs) willing to be drawn into this podcast episode again. Forced into it. Yeah, we primarily set up (laughs) shop right beside his desk, so that way he didn't really have an excuse. Oh, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to be here. Um, But we're we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, and in this week's reading, we're looking at Mark 4.21 through 7.37. And there are many parables that take place here along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. And Josh, I want to just throw it to you. Sure. In these texts from Mark 4, 21 through 7, mm-hmm. are there any that you especially um, appreciated as you preached through this a couple years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, the well-known storm, uh, story of Jesus and the wind and the waves think going in depth into that and being convicted that I'm more like the disciples than I would care to admit, seeing the wonders and works of Jesus in my own life, and then and then doubting that he cares for me in the moments of hardships. Um, I, I think that was one that particularly affected me as I was going through uh, these chapters here. In chapter five, yeah, when Jesus drives the demon out of the man mm-hmm. and into the pigs, you commented on how it is so significant that there were pigs in the area. Can you talk us through why that matters and why the individuals at the end of the story were not thrilled with Jesus? Well, you remember that, huh? I don't remember that talking about the significance of that. But Josh, I thought that this was one of the great sermons in your Mark series. Oh, well, well, thank you for that. I wish I remembered it as well as you do. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, the significance of pigs, I mean, it's Gentile territory. It tells us that for one and that there are pig farmers. I mean, that that's what was uh, looked down upon in, in Jewish culture. And um, the significance of the pigs being there, um, I mean, it's they possess a lot of money, the, the farmers there working with it, and he's basically causing some havoc in that town by sending the demons into them, into the sea then to, to die and drown. Um, but other than that, I'm not sure what significance you're looking for. Okay, well, let's move on then to why do you think that people... <laughs> Begged Jesus to leave their region. Yeah, yeah. They they begged Jesus to leave the region because they were terrified of the man who could calm 
the demoniac, right? Um, the guy had a legion of demons within him, and he's been causing havoc on this countryside for quite a bit of time. They tried to chain him, everything they could, and they just were not able to because he broke the chains, and he just continued to screech, holler, and instill terror in, in the countryside. So when they see this guy, who they have no idea who he is, Jesus, calm him and really cast the demons out, and he's finally in his right mind, they rightly conclude that this guy is somehow stronger and, and better than what this guy is or whatever he had within him. And they, they're not sure at this point, if, is Jesus good or is he bad? I mean, he, he kind of just killed all their pigs, right? I mean, their livelihood a little bit. And so I think they have a lot of questions about whether or not we can trust him. And so there's a lot of questions about him. And rather than try to investigate, figure it out, they say, we're not going to take that chance. Just just leave. You know, we, we don't want anything really to do with you. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he also solved their biggest problem. Yes and no. I mean, at the cost of how many pigs was it there? A couple thousand or something like that. So yeah. I think it's mixed emotions and feelings there. Okay. So then help me understand this guy who just had the demons cast out of him mm-hmm. wants to follow Jesus. Right. Like over and over again, there mm-hmm. are people who say they want to follow Jesus mm-hmm. and then he tells them what's required and they go away sad right. or they are trying to prohibit Jesus from spreading his message. This guy wants to follow Jesus and Jesus doesn't let him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Help, help me understand this. In order to fully understand why Jesus tells someone something is to really access the mind of God and we can only you know make suggestions as to why that is. And so he sends him back to his own town to tell of all the works. And so while the people are still uncertain about Jesus, his identity, who he is, this man is certain. He knows who Jesus is. And so he sends him back as really a Gentile missionary to the Gentiles to tell him about Jesus. And as far as the Gentiles are concerned at this point, um, they don't really have a minister to them telling them the good news of Christ yet. And so Jesus basically commissions the first one right here to go to the Gentiles to tell them the great news of how he was delivered. And in doing so, I mean, he's foreshadowing the coming deliverance of Gentiles across the globe, I think. Um, But yeah, I think that's maybe one of the reasons why he doesn't have him come with them. That's great. Mm -hmm. Well, in the next section, we come across an instance where Jesus both restores a girl Mm. and heals a woman. Right. And it's like there's a two-part scene here. So Jesus Mm. begins to go to help the girl, and then he's interrupted. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, we referenced this already as we were talking about Leviticus, but then Mm. he returns and and really raises the girl from the dead, we might say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you help us understand why would Mark emphasize mm-hmm. the interruption along the way? Yeah, we, we mentioned this. This was the sandwich, right? Right. He begins a story, interruption, and then we come back to the story. And there's something about that middle story that's connecting the t- all of it together. And in this case, um, we have this, this religious ruler, right? Is it Jairus? Is that how you say it? Yeah, I believe Jairus. And he comes. He's coming to Jesus. He wants his daughter healed. And then we get an interruption from this woman who's, who's bleeding, shouldn't be there. And yet she touches Jesus, believing that he can heal her, right? And then she does, and Jesus points her out, and he says, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. And what's being drawn out is this, this faith, this faith of hers that saved her. It's her faith. And in that, we're, we're kind of seeing Jairus' need is to do the same. He needs to believe that Jesus can even heal his own daughter, right? This daughter 
of Jesus is just healed, and now he needs to believe that can be the same about his own. And so after this account, we read that uh, his daughter dies, and they're like, oh, don't bother about Jesus, you know, just leave him. And then what does Jesus say to him? Don't be afraid, only believe. And so mm-hmm. what this woman with the ailment just did in having faith and believing, now he's calling him to do the same. And so I think that's what Mark is really doing through that story is you need to believe in Jesus and be healed of the greater ailment of the sin within your souls and, and be saved. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's how that's complementing and being sandwiched together uh, to really drive home that point that what are you going to do with Jesus? You need to be healed too. So believe in him, have faith. Absolutely. Now, Jesus then commissions the 12 disciples, and he sends them out in pairs and gives them some specific instructions. Is this the paradigm for weekend evangelism? (laughs) The paradigm for weekend evangelism. Yeah, I've often heard you need to go door to door in a pair of two people and, um, you know, perhaps... Don't take any extra money. Just go out there, knock on doors, and then shake the dust off your feet if someone doesn't want to talk to you. Is that what's going on here? Is that how we should be reading Mark 6, 7 through 13? Yeah, I can't remember any commentaries saying anything like that at all, but that's that's hilarious. Um, No, no, not at all. If anything, uh, these instructions given to the disciples, I think, really has a lot to do um, with the imagery that we see um, with the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Um, a lot of these instructions, what they're to travel with, really are mirrored in a lot of ways in what Israel was to do when they were delivered from Egypt. They don't take anything with you, just go, I will provide for your needs. And in a similar way, I think they're to embody this message of deliverance. God is going to begin to deliver through you. And so image this, what I did in history, again here, um, as Jesus commissions them out. And they're to trust God just as Israel did. Uh, to provide for their needs, right? Don't take anything with you, trust me. And so this is specific to his disciples here as they, again, kind of embody the message of deliverance once more in redemptive history. Yeah, I think it's an interesting paragraph because sometimes we get this idea that for the entire time, the disciples were always with Jesus, always just observing him, Mm -hmm. not really kind of like they're just tag-alongs with Jesus and they never do anything. Mm-hmm. But here, it's pretty clear that they accomplish these things because then it, you know, later on in verse 30, the disciples gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done right. and taught. So they were doing this during Jesus's, Jesus's lifetime. This didn't start at the, mm-hmm. you know, at his ascension. Uh, I thought I just yep. think that's interesting yep. and maybe changes a little bit of how we imagine they interacted with Jesus. Yeah, they weren't always together as one. Mm-hmm. Now we get to this text where it's really tragic. John the Baptist is beheaded, mm-hmm. really for no good reason at all. Here, right? Um, what should we make of this story? It it is just bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John is a, a righteous man fulfilling. Uh, the law of God, and it was wrong for Herod to take his brother's wife. I mean, is that in Leviticus? Again, I have to double check, but I mean, yeah, Leviticus not, yeah. talks about that. I think yeah. 16 or 17, not 16. What am I thinking? 13, I think. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's 13. Well, again, I think that just colors this here. We realize how wrong it is for the Jewish king of, of all the people to be breaking the law so blatantly. I mean, the king is supposed to be a model for the people, one yeah. who's following God, and yet here he is 
doing that, which is completely outrageous and not to be done uh, for the Jewish people. And we probably need to interject that even though he ruled over the Jewish people, Mm -hmm. they did not really see him as their king. No, that's good. More than that, he definitely was not a descendant of David and was not making messianic claims. He was just a pawn of Rome. Yeah, and in using the language King Herod, as Mark does, it's, it's... it's a joke more than anything. He's it's almost a mocking type thing when he calls him King Herod here. Do we see did we talk about how this maybe connects to Esther a little bit too, or at least recalls Ahasuerus, you know, just kind of granting a wish. Foolish, foolish request. Yeah. yeah. King doing just like he did back yeah, then. Yeah. I I think up to half your kingdom. Yeah. I, I don't think that this is a a shout out to Esther's situation <laughs> at all. Um I don't think it's an echo or an illusion of uh, to to that account. I think we talked about this in our Esther interview, actually. I think Dr. John um, Anthony Dunn brought this up. Yeah, he you did. Reference that forthcoming podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which who knows when that will drop. I don't know the timing of this, but he references it, and he's in agreement with me, or I'm in agreement with him, that this is not an allusion to mm-hmm. Esther. But you do see another king mm-hmm. who's making a grandiose request, which is hilarious because this guy doesn't even have a kingdom, no, really. No, he doesn't. He, you know what? He has a province that he's overseeing, essentially, on behalf of the Roman Empire. So he's already sort of self-inflated, mm-hmm. but here, even more so, where he d- doesn't want to be embarrassed, essentially. Right. You know, it's not that this is an example of integrity and keeping your promises or something, um, He, but he executes John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. More than that, how manipulative of this mother to have her daughter request this. Right. That this is just an awful scene all the way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Jesus has already spoken incredibly high of John the Baptist. You know, the greatest born among men is John the Baptist, and he's just praising this guy. And as as the reader, as the audience, as we see this happen to one of the greats it's foreshadowing what's going to happen to the greatest Jesus. And if yeah. this is what happens to one of Jesus's, you know, greatest, you know, proponents, one of his greatest followers, then what does that mean for him? What does that mean for the rest of us? And I think it's it's setting up setting us up to really understand what it means to follow Jesus. Now, you pointed out that we should understand John the Baptist as Elijah. What mm-hmm. connections mm-hmm. between this account and Elijah's experience with people like Ahab and Jezebel, what what connection should we be <laughs> thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I think you just pointed it out right there. I mean, Elijah and was dealing with Ahab and was it Jezebel, and she tried to kill him. Uh, wasn't successful, but in this case, uh, the Jezebel of the New Testament here, uh, Herodias, was successful and, and got his head on a platter. Um, so, I mean, you both have kings' wives going after the prophet of God in, in pretty gruesome ways and trying to kill them, and uh, in this case, they succeed. I want to talk about another woman's interactions with Jesus. <laughs> there is, in chapter 7, verse 24, uh, what's often referred to as the Syrophoenician woman, I believe, uh, yes. um, a Gentile mother. Um, she she is talking to Jesus, and Jesus refers to her essentially as a dog. Mm-hmm. Is Jesus a racist? <laughs> no, no. And maybe not. you understand that I'm referencing this TikTok video that went viral where yeah. um, this youth pastor looked at this account and said that Jesus was a racist and this woman spoke truth to power. And mm-hmm. she's a good example for us all and Jesus is a bad example here. So how mm-hmm. should we 
understand this text other than the way that this TikTok sensation guy did. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as as dogs. That much is true. And uh, they didn't like them. They would even, uh, even as we were talking about earlier, they would wipe the dust off their sandals after leaving Gentile territory. Can Now, can mm-hmm. I pause you there? Yeah. Because we just talked about Leviticus, mm-hmm. where Israelites are to treat the alien among them mm-hmm. with love, right? Just as the Lord loved them, right? And they didn't; they weren't doing that. And so, so you're cool. so you're saying for them to look at Gentiles as dogs is negative in a failure to li- to mm-hmm. live according to the word of the Lord and to embody the commands of God. Is that what Leviticus says? It says to love the alien. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what, they weren't doing that. I don't think. Okay. Yeah. No. So I think. Yeah, that's correct. They, they weren't obeying their own laws given to them. So yeah, I, I think that's that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So why why is it okay for Jesus to refer to her as a dog? Right. Right. So he's using the common language of the day that was already prevalent among Jewish people, and he's doing this to really, I think, test the woman, and he's putting her faith on display through this question. I mean, he's demonstrating something that we all need if we are going to receive true healing. And that is humility. And through doing this, and and putting her uh, putting her in this precarious position by calling her a dog, so to speak, she she accepts it. She humbles herself. She realizes you're right. I'm nothing. And and but even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. And even if you view me that way, even if I view myself that way, we still get crumbs. And and I need your grace anyway. I need your mercy. And so she's posi- positioning herself in a humble manner, which is what we all need. And the reality is uh, we don't bring anything to the table. So tell me if I'm wrong in the way that I would read this. Mm -hmm. I want to read it as if there are people around, obviously, who are observing this, Mm -hmm. who would have just without thought referred to this lady derogatorily, you know, using this pejorative Mm -hmm. language. And it seems to me that Jesus, for the sake of the people listening, is teeing her up. Yeah. to knock it out of the ballpark. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and it's not so much that he is declaring people should look at you and think of you like you're a dog, mm-hmm. but he's speaking for the sake of his audience to set the scene for them mm-hmm. and then to show I I fully mm-hmm. give my grace and healing to this lady, right? Yeah. I do think this is challenging because we need to recognize Jesus is speaking in in the way that everyone was talking, but I don't think he was making an affirmation that she should be viewed that way because mm-hmm. by setting up, setting the whole thing up that way, he creates a scenario where people see her full acceptance mm-hmm. uh, by him, mm-hmm. which we might not feel the strength of that if he hadn't sort of colored it in how everybody's viewing this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Josh, as we get to the end of Mark Seven. I know that this isn't the ending of the book of Mark, but I think it's a great way for us to end our reading this week. The mm-hmm. people looked at Jesus. They were extremely astonished and said, he has done everything well. Mm-hmm. What should we be thinking about Jesus up to this point in the gospel of Mark? Is he's been rejected by some, received by others. He does mm-hmm. great deeds. Mm-hmm. He forgives mm-hmm. sins. He does everything well. Yeah, he does everything well. Mark's been putting that before us over and over again. He's the one who rules the waves and the sea. He's the one who has authority over sickness and death. He's the one who walks on the water. And in all of this, he's he's showing us that he is God. He is God, the one who does all things well and good. 
And so as we, as we leave, looking at all the miraculous things Jesus has done, uh, we're confronted with, who is he? Who do I believe him to be? And as Mark's been trying to get us to believe, will I believe in him to save myself, save me from my sins? Will I humble myself, acknowledge my need, and, and place my faith, hope in him completely alone, even as the Syrophoenician woman does? Amen. Well, we have reached the conclusion of our Bible reading this week. And if you want the bonus bit, you can stick around where we will pick up with one last thing in just a moment. (laughs) But this is the Resurrection Church Podcast, a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. And you can learn more at www.resurrectionmn.org. Now, in this bonus segment... I want to just ask you guys, do you wash your hands before you eat food every time you do? Every time? Um, no, Most of the time. I would, I would say if I remember. <laughs> Josh, you have a banana here. I do not wash my hands with eating bananas, no. Can you open it and take a bite with unwashed hands so that we, we can indict you? Absolutely. So right. that way we can sort of act out what's going on here. Mm. I'm, I'm going to use the logic of the scribes in Pharisees. AJ, you'll use the logic of Jesus, and Josh, you'll be the poor schmuck who gets caught up in the middle of all of this. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're unrighteous. You're eating a banana without washing your hands. And I am. Do you not know that you're defiling yourself? <laughs> no, this is where AJ responds right. Yeah, this is where <laughs> AJ sets our thinking right. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Mm. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is defiles him. From, for from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Mm. All right, you've changed my mind. Josh, it's okay for you to be eating that banana without washing your hands, and I think I might get myself one too.